I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. <clears throat> I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now. Um, piece of advice on these uh, question cards. Uh, we've discovered that the, there's a clear pattern of questions actually make it to the speakers through Kevin and then through me. It's the ones that are extremely legible <laughs> and short. Um, there's a website now you can go to and you can see uh, live images from the uh, space uh, science satellite looking uh, out and down mostly. And uh, you go to it and it's either black because it's night or it's gray because they're changing cameras or it's blue because it's looking down at the ocean most of the time. And you look and you know, is there something wrong here? And then a cloud goes by. It's moving very quickly. And you think, well, that's really boring. But there's so much of it, you realize actually from space, that's what Earth is. It's not Earth, it's ocean. And then you're down on the surface of the ocean, it's incredibly turbulent, and you're in danger of drowning, and there's things that might eat you, and it's all very fast-moving. Um, but if you're in a boat, you get this realization that comes after a while. It's all connected. And you can go anywhere. And the things that live in there can go anywhere and do. Uh, so to start us on that journey, here's Attorney Teese. Thanks, Stuart. <clears throat> well, hi, everybody. I'm really happy to be here tonight. Um, the ocean is arguably the single most complex, largest feature on our planet. It's the one feature that sets us apart from every other planet in the known universe. And while it's often said that we live in, on, in a small world, our ocean is immense, like Stuart was saying. And we've seen less than 5% of it with our own eyes. Volumetrically, 99% of Earth's habitable living space lies under sea, which means that we landlubbers live on a mere 1% of the available living space on the planet. And despite the fact that we're in this you know, sequestered 1% occupation, we are having a huge effect on the rest of the 99. So, what to do about that? Well, I figured the best thing is to dive in and get wet. So, in the spirit of long-term thinking, I thought it would be fun for us to take a long ocean journey together, driven by the motion of the ocean itself. And for this adventure, we will be riding on the Great Ocean Conveyor Belt, a round trip will take us between 1,000 to 1,500 years to complete. But we'll, we'll, we'll move along at a steady clip and we'll finish before dawn, actually in about 25 minutes. So, Okay, so should we get started? Let's dive in. All right. So let's dive into the Gulf Stream. This famous current was created when the Isthmus of Panama rose up some 4.5 million years ago to join North and South America separating the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean basins. And that little act changed everything. It created the ocean circulation patterns we have today. 
As we glide no north, we will be passing through an unfathomable amount of genetic microbial diversity. Just last month, MIT researchers found that the most abundant photosynthetic organism on the planet, Prochlorococcus, a cyanobacteria, best known for creating a lot of the oxygen that we breathe, this little um, cyanobacteria has these little vesicles on it. And within those vesicles are lots of unique flexible sets of DNA rapid, that's um, capable of rapid, um, rapidly evolving. So when you think of Prochlorococcus, which is a billion, billion, billion cells, and you add these little vesicles on each cell to it, the amount of genetic diversity within our ocean, is, and that's just one species, is almost inconceivable. So there's a lot of genetic power in this saline soup we're swimming through. So speaking of swimming, why don't we take a little dip into the Sargasso Sea while we're here. And this is a floating golden rainforest, home to mysterious eels and fish with fingers. This place is part of what's known as the high seas, ocean regions outside any country's economic jurisdiction, the no man's lands protected by no one, yet they comprise about 58, almost 60% of the ocean. The Sargasso Sea is special, though, because just in March, five countries got together to sign the Hamilton Pact, protect, um, pledging to protect the, the Sargasso Sea. So hopefully soon it will join a small but promising handful of high seas protected areas, and more will follow. High seas are a high priority right now in ocean conservation. Um, the Sargasso is also one of Sylvia's hope spots. Um, and these are places around the globe where we can still see ocean, the ocean's vibrancy at work. And you'll be hearing more of those when Sylvia takes the stage. So stay tuned on the hope spots. Now, speaking of hope spots and marine protected areas, the, um, the oops, let's sorry, go back. Um, the, the, Marine Protected Area Atlas, MPA Atlas, says we have about 8,000 marine protected areas, which is about less, still less than 3% of the world's ocean protected. Now, it's good news that we have um, so many. It's, that's so many more than in the last 10 years, and the rate of putting in marine protected areas has really increased, but we still have a long way to go before we have 20% of the ocean protected and the aim is to get that protected by 2020. So um, that, that's the goal set by many scientists so that we can protect enough ocean before causing more irrevocable damage. So continuing north, let's, let's continue our journey. And as we move north, we'll pass by George's Banks off of, off of um, Cape Cod, home to one of the most famous fisheries, 500-year-old fishery, the Atlantic Cod Fishery which crashed famously in the 90s due to overexploitation. But there is some good news here. Today, many of the US fisheries are actually um, starting to rebound, like we have Alaskan pollock, mid-Atlantic bluefish, haddock, black sea bass, and most recently, the little menhaden are getting protected as well, the forage fish. So for US fisheries, we're starting to recover. Um, thanks in large part to the Magnuson-Stevenson Act and strict regulations. But unfortunately, this is not the case for the rest of the world, where globally, global fisheries 
two-thirds of them are still overexploited. The important thing to remember here is that we Americans import up to 90% of our seafood. So, and that supports a $10 billion industry. And about a third of our wild import um, are, are illegally caught. So it doesn't matter how you like your seafood cooked. By the time it reaches your plate, a third of it's going to already arrive poached. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to put that in. <clears throat> so, you know, our seafood consumption is second only to China. And so the choices we make at the market and at the, um, at the restaurants, that's having a huge impact on supporting or not supporting globally destructive fisheries. Um, the take-home message is eat more vegetables, just like your mom told you to. Um, and if you do buy or order fish, buy fish that are um, low on the food chain and that are caught by U.S. well-managed fisheries, um, and also support policies that enforce mandatory seafood tracking. So while we're up north here, let's continue our journey, and we'll pay a visit over to Scotland a place sometimes referred to as the Saudi Arabia of renewable resources due to its wind and, and, and tidal currents. Here in the Pentland Firth, right there at the top of, of Scotland, we, see, we um, find some of the fastest moving tidal currents in the world, about 30 kilometers an hour. And it's also the site of, of um, the proposed site of Europe's largest tidal turbine array which is predicted to extract about 16,000 gigawatt hours a year for Scotland. Now, to, as a point of reference, Diablo Canyon, just a bit south of here, power plant, delivers about 18,000 gigawatt hours of electricity annually, which is about 7% of California's energy needs. So Scotland's tidal energy extraction, if this goes in and, and does what it's predicted to, to do, is looking pretty, pretty respectable. Globally, ocean energy is still a bit player, but um, in, in our fossil fuel economy, but it can, um, in some regions, really make a significant impact, like Scotland, which is trying to decarbonize its economy by 2030. And that's some pretty good long-term thinking, um, I'd say. So as we've traveled north to Scotland, it's gotten chillier and our warm, salty, tropical waters have cooled and become more dense. The winds have stolen the fresh water from them, and they've become even saltier, and they've started to sink. And this process is called deep water formation. It also happens down in Antarctica. And it's the driving force of our global ocean conveyor belt, also known as thermohaline circulation, thermoheat haline salt. So, so that's, that's our... Um, our mechanism. And so while we're up here, I figured we'd take a fun detour to see the largest, wa the tallest waterfall in the world, the Denmark Strait Cataract, located between Iceland and Greenland. And that is not it. <laughs> you can't see the world's tallest waterfall because it's underwater. But if you could, it would be three times taller than Angel Falls, which is what that is. And it'd be 2,000 times Niagara at peak flow. So next time you're up there, you could, 
try to find that one. It's kind of a fun detour. Okay, so back on to our journey. All right, so um, racing along, we will continue down, staying deep, and race along the ragged edge of the world's longest mountain range, 10,000 kilometers long, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. This is where seafloor crust is conjured from the bowels of the earth, and it's also where the theory of continental drift was proven when, when the Mid-Atlantic Ridge was discovered. It's also what broke up Pangaea some 200 million years ago. And, you know, give us another 250 million years and we may have another supercontinent. But for now, if you've got old world, new world differences, well, you can just blame it on a mid-Atlantic ridge. So let's see. We'll just come continue on and stay deep. The currents get a little complicated here, but we'll continue our journey. We'll stay deep in this current and we'll follow, our, follow it down up under Africa. This little current is our return current that'll take us home later on. But we'll take this and we'll sidle up next to Madagascar. You know, they just found a new continent underwater next to Madagascar called Mauritia later on that. I'll talk to you about that later. And then we'll go past Bangladesh where we'll have 18 million people displaced in the next 40 years due to rising sea levels. And we'll stop right about here. Okay, and then nice little circle around the Indian Ocean. And we're going to stop here at the search site of Air Malaysia Flight 370, a lengthy, unrequited search, which underscores just how much of the ocean still remains um, difficult to access and image. Even with such amazing technologies as synthetic aperture sonar and synthetic aperture radar, so um, this tragedy of Air Malaysia also underscores the enormous amount of trash in our ocean that mucks up any search, um, res search and rescue operations. The Indian Ocean, like every other ocean basin, has a circular gyre that swirls around thousands, hundreds of tons of trash, human-made trash. Um, and recent tallies estimate about 5.25 trillion particles of plastic weighing half a million tons are in our ocean. So this plastic doesn't biodegrade and lasts for hundreds of years. But it's not just the plastic. The plastic actually concentrates pollutants like PB, um, DDTs and PCBs. So they're actually like these little poison pills. So um, that's, that's sort of a rather unsavory long-term legacy. The solution? Reduce, reuse, re redesign plastics and our, and our trash streams so we don't add more to the mix. And it's such great news to hear that San Francisco is making steady headway on this, banning plastic bags and single-use water bottles by October. Go San Francisco! Woohoo! <laughs> really setting a great example for the rest of the world to follow, definitely. And you could check out the Plastic Pollution Coalition for more solutions there. Okay, so continuing our journey along, we will, we will stay on our deep water current here and join the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, the mother of all currents here, the largest one that circles all the way around here. 
This is the one that allows for exchange between the Indian, Atlantic, and Pacific Ocean basins. It's really the, the big current. And its circular flow there, you can see, is um, what helps keep warm waters away from Antarctica and keep that continent, the white continent. That task, however, is getting a, quite a bit tougher these days. Two independent studies confirmed last week that the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet is well underway and has likely gone past the point of no return. And once this glacier right here, the Thwaite Glacier, finishes melting, as pictured here, it will raise sea levels two feet in the next 200 years. And it's predicted to act as a rather a linchpin for the rest of this entire West Antarctic ice sheet. And when that melts, that will raise sea level another 10 to 13 feet. Um, three to four meters globally. So this is the big elephant in the room, isn't it? Or perhaps elephant seal, as the case may be. Um, sea level rise is inevitable in our future, and places like Panama, Miami, Boston, New York, Maldives, Kiribati, Bangladesh, all these places are gonna be seeing large inevitable changes. That said, it's not all bad down here, down in Antarctica. Just a few weeks ago, the International Whaling Commission closed down Japan's scientific whaling, which is great. So upwards of 400 minke whales will be spared. So that's great. Now how the whales and marine life will fare down here in the face of these large freshwater influxes and warming? Well, Adelie penguins are already suffering and it's a big area, hot area of research. Okay, now recall this circumpolar current it goes all the way around Antarctica. Well, <clears throat> these waters can stay deep or they can join surface waters and return to the Gulf Stream. So if we run the animation backwards, we can pick up that return trip here, right here, this current here. And so remember, we're running the, the animation backwards so the current looks like it's going the wrong direction, but it's actually taking us this way. And we'll pass Galapagos and across the Pacific, and we will head into a most beautiful part of the Pacific, right here. Hmm, the epicenter of marine diversity, the Coral Triangle. Now this is, a, this is a, an amazing, amazing place. You find more than 500 species of coral, 3,000 species of fish, six of the world's seven turtle species, um, dugong, cetaceans, the works. Um, and it's a global priority for ocean conservation. Just north of the triangle, um, we find Micronesia and Palau, whose inspiring president, Tommy Remingasau, is banning all commercial fishing in his waters, an area roughly the size of France. For him, Ecotourism, which brings in about $85 million a year, compared to fisheries, mostly from Japan and Taiwan, which brings in about $5 million a year, it's kind of a no-brainer. Ecotourism wins out. In this case, a live shark in tuna is worth thousands more than a dead one. So further um, below this, another hope story. We've got New Caledonia which just instated the natural park of the Coral Sea, 1.3 million square kilometers, 500,000 square 
miles, an area about the size of Alaska, and according to Conservation International, the largest protected area on land or sea. So that's big. That just happened. Big news. So the question now becomes, how do you enforce these vast areas um, to make them, um, instead of just being paper parks, honest-to-goodness, real protected areas? And there's some really promising tech solutions in that realm. First, we've got some um, low-cost planetary satellite um, observing systems, like Planet Lab's Dove systems. These, are, these little guys can survey the entire planet every day and make those data available to the world for free. Lo gotta love that. And the Skybox is another company imaging the planet regularly. Both companies are California-based. Got some great innovation here. This kind of technology can keep a near real-time eye on coastal changes and um, potentially illegal fishing operations. Secondly, there are low-cost surface surveillance vehicles like liquid robotics wave gliders powered by the motion of the ocean. And um, the sail drone powered by the wind. Both of these made here in the Bay Area. Again, I'm seeing a trend here <laughs> having to do with the Bay Area. Um, so um, these vehicles can listen and scan for illegal fishing boats and operations. They can carry lots of sensors, um, as can aerial drones. So recently, an Australian company, Aerosonde, tested their aerial drones in Palau and are making steady headway to help out MPA enforcement over there. And here in the Bay Area, Shaw Selby, a National Geographic Emerging Explorer, is making ocean drones for um, conservation as well in his project called Soar Ocean. So these, I find, are great reasons for hope. Promising automated solutions that could be applied across the world to empower local groups for, um, to protect their own MPAs. So now, if we follow the current, if we follow our current back on our journey, we could take this, this current and ride that all the way back to the Gulf Stream. But I think, and, and, and end up where we started. But instead, I think there's one section of the belt we've yet to explore. Actually, there are lots, but um, we can only do so much. And, and tonight, I'd like to end by exploring our own waters off of California here. And we'll get there by going back to this little spot here. And right here, taking this deep, deep water current right there. You can see faintly. And then we'll, we'll, we'll take that up into the Pacific here and explore there. <clears throat> now, this deep water current holds the oldest ocean water, the water that's been far, from the, far um, from the surface the longest. It's also some of the most acidic water. And when these old, cold, acidic waters upwell next to our shores, they can have a corrosive impact on a lot of the creatures here. Like, for instance, these little snails called pteropods or sea butterflies that can comprise a large part of the diet of pink salmon, walleye, pollock, and tuna. Recently, Oregon State researchers did surveys, and they found that 53% of the little pteropods they sampled, they're supposed to have these clear shells. Their shells were all pitted and pockmarked and starting to dissolve. 53% of them. And that's expected to go up rapidly in the, in the coming years. 
Oysters are being affected as well. Taylor Shellfish Farm in, in Sheldon, Washington, the, the nation's largest supplier of, of, of shellfish, has had to move its, its um, oyster larvae to Hawaii to less acidic waters so that their larvae have a better chance of survival. And this just isn't happening in the Pacific. This is globally. We have changed the chemistry of the ocean, lowering the pH from 8.25 to 8.14 in less than about, in about 250 years. That's a 30% change. And it's, this is the key, it's 100 times faster than any pH changes that have happened in the ocean in the last 20 million years. That is a rate that's very difficult for the animal world and the life to, to keep pace with. So for those unfamiliar with the mechanism, the ocean observes, absorbs about a third of our carbon emissions. And when carbon dioxide meets seawater, one of the products it makes is carbonic acid, which lowers ocean pH. The lower the pH, the more acidic. Um, with severe consequences for animals relying on calcium carbonate, like oysters, pteropods, corals, coral reefs. Deeper, colder waters can hold more gas and more CO2 respiratory wa waste from ocean life as well. So dealing and adapting to ocean acidification, it's going to be one of our biggest long-term challenges because those deep waters rise, as we can see in this conveyor belt. And we just don't know how these rapid changes are going to play out on the megafauna of the world ocean, many of whom live here off of California in an area that's been called the Blue Serengeti. This, these are the tracks of dozens of species, from, from blue whales to white sharks to ocean sunfish, my particular favorite. And I love this image because it represents just the hundreds of scientists and thousands of, t of satellite tags that we now have been able to reveal the, the movements of these animals like never before. And, you know, it just confirms what we already knew, that the left coast is the hottest, hippest place to hang out in the world ocean. We knew that, didn't we? Yeah, well, we didn't need no satellite tag to us that. But, um, so researchers are working on wiring the ocean even further with mobile listening stations able to record real-time data and relay it to our smartphones so that we can know the whereabouts of whales and white sharks. We can avoid ship strikes and other unwanted encounters that way. And so our traditional, what's been viewed as paparazzi oceanography, where we, we cover a wow event here and a wow event there, that's slowly starting to change. Well, actually more and more rapidly with ocean animals as our research assistants, and the creation of things like cabled observatories, like this one down in Monterey Bay, run by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, we can have 24-7 presence in the ocean. And that's really the key to understanding it. Having coordinated, consistent coverage, it takes time, infrastructure, money, a lot of funding, um, doesn't like to do these long-term projects, a lot of funding mechanisms, but it's really, it's really the key to figuring out our long-term future in the ocean. And there's something else that really gives me a great shot of adrenaline when I think about our deep future in the ocean. It's the bounty of ways every person on this planet can explore the ocean, study the ocean, 
and conserve its resources. Projects like SeaHack. Do you guys know about SeaHack? This is a portal of citizen science projects that everyone can, can play a part from identifying plankton to deciphering whale songs to checking on the health of, of coral reefs. It's so many great, meaningful ways to do, to do science. The maker movement that's rocket launching our ocean curiosity. Take, for example, David Lang's great ocean ROV project, open, open ROV project. David is in the audience, so you must find him and his team. He's here today. Um, another great project from the Bay Area, I might add. Um, providing kits for kids and adults to build their own underwater vehicles, now in 50 countries. So that is just a, a great project there. And there are online courses, like from Coursera and FutureLearn, that are granting us free access to some of the great ocean professors out there. Um, news aggregating groups, like Upwell's Tide Report, that make it easy to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the ocean, so you can stay up to date. We have all these pieces of the puzzle. We just need to start fitting them together. So I'll leave you with these final thoughts. Earth alone holds the only known accessible liquid ocean in the universe. Oh, oh, I forgot to add one last thing. Google Ocean, which help you, um, Sylvia helped start, Google Ocean and Caitlin Seaview has, um, are taking, um, essentially making underwater street view. So you can put the ocean onto your desktop and explore it in panoramic detail. And they were just in Raja Ampat last month, in, in March. So they're another one to, to watch for. Being able to explore the ocean from your desktop is fabulous. So, um, so getting back, you know, Earth alone holds the only known accessible liquid ocean in the universe. Mars appears to have had an ocean, but lost it. Presumably due to solar winds, other forces, Jupiter's Europa, Saturn's Enceladus, they may have liquid oceans, but they're buried miles under a thick icy shell. It appears Earth alone has retained its watery blue ocean in the face of solar winds and increasing solar luminosity. Why? In large part, thanks to the relentless respiratory processes of Earth's bountiful life, a life, the life that emerged, evolved, and diversified in our ocean and then crawled out onto land. Earth's life has helped retain our liquid ocean, which in turn has, has allowed life on Earth to flourish. As a member of this grand scheme, on what side of human history do we want to place our smart selves? When life promotes life, wondrous things emerge, like psychedelic cuttlefish, and amazing manta rays that seem to somersault with joy as they swim filtering the water in searching for food. And intelligent entities emerge, like graceful cetaceans and conscious humans. Wondrous things, I think, are still to come on this watery planet. And I dearly, dearly want our species to bear witness to a bountiful future, not just for the next 100 years, but at least for the next 10,000. 
We've got all the tools as never before to harness our our problem-solving 7 billion brains. Now it's just time to get to work. Tierney, thank you. You have set the stage. (laughs) Taken all my best lines. (laughs) But really, we're talking about the ocean here. It's just, as you point out, it's most of the living world, both in terms of abundance and in terms of diversity. We're focusing here on the long now. Think about how long it has taken to get to where we are now. (laughs) At least we have some idea that Earth is four and a half billion years in the making. And it's only fairly recently in that long stretch of time that Earth has been hospitable for the likes of us. Even half a billion years ago, It would have been an unfriendly place for big mammals, big oxygen-hungry creatures such as we. There's plenty of life on Earth half a billion years ago. When I dive into the ocean, as tyranny has just taken all of us diving into the ocean, many of the creatures that we encounter along the way, we may even be pretty much the way they were then. A lot of new things arrived, like fish, and birds, trees, many of the things that are here now that have taken a long time for Earth to acquire. But here's the shocking thing. It's taking a very short period of time for humankind to alter the nature of nature to change the basics of what brought us here in the first place. Attorney mentioned changing the chemistry of the ocean. Well, if I were some alien out there charged with trying to undo the four and a half billion years of whatever it has taken to get us to this amazing place that we, we think of as ours, think of the way humans think of themselves. It wasn't long ago that Galileo was was given a really hard time because he challenged the idea that Earth was not the center of the universe. But we still kind of think of ourselves, humans, as being the center of the universe. It's just a fact. We think we're the big boss of the world, maybe of the universe. At least, That's the way it appears when you consider the way we behave. Burning through the assets that have taken all preceding time 
Garden of Eden, if you will, but it's really a, a blue ocean that drives the way the world functions, delivers most of the oxygen in the atmosphere through biological processes. But even that process, photosynthesis, wasn't here when first life appeared. It's taken a long time to get to the now that we share. It's only taken a few hundred years, mainly in the last 200, but at an accelerating pace. So I think it's safe to say that in the last half century, at the same time that we've had this explosion of new knowledge, new information, learning more perhaps than during all preceding history about big questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? And maybe most importantly, where are we going? We have the capacity now to not only ask those questions, I suppose humans and maybe even elephants and whales and dolphins and some pretty smart fish that I know. <laughs> maybe they want to know, as a child might ask, where did I come from? You keep asking that question, I do, all my life. Where have we come from? Maybe the most important question is not where are we going, but how are we going to get to wherever that is? Well, it starts with knowing. And maybe we are the only creatures on Earth with the capacity not only to understand what we understand, but then to act in a way that can protect the systems, the basic functions of the planet that have, have taken so long to put into place and are becoming unraveled so quickly. In that same half century that we have learned more, it seems that maybe we have lost more. At least when you think about the numbers. Half the coral reefs since I was a child, wasn't that long ago, geologically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> but they're gone, or they're in a state of serious decline. In the Caribbean, 80% of the reefs that were there in the 1950s are simply gone. That's scary stuff when you really think about how long it took to get them to where they were and how rapidly they're coming apart. About 90% of many of the big fish, and a lot of the little ones too, have been extracted from the ocean by us. We are new predators on these ancient systems that have nothing in their life history that has accounted for the steady, relentless predation that we impose across the board. The big ones, the medium-sized ones, the little ones, whether they taste good or taste horrible but can be used for something like oil that we squeeze out of them or grind them up to feed to cattle and pigs and chickens that don't ask questions too much about where their food came from. Bottom of the ocean, they don't know. Ed Wilson, one of my favorite humans, the ant man from Harvard, but a lot more, sort of a poet scientist. He acknowledges that over 10,000 years from the beginnings of serious 
human civilization coming together. In North America, the pattern is clear. We consume the large, the slow, and the tasty creatures, exterminating a number of those that now exist only as fossils, in some ancient memory that perhaps we have deep inside of us. We're doing it much more quickly in the ocean. The large, think whales, think tunas, think that wonderful creature eliminated within just a couple of decades of its discovery, a kind of manatee that lives in, lived now only in memory in, in the Arctic. Stellar's sea cow, gone. The great auk, gone. In the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean Sea, we once had monk seals lounging on Miami Beach, <laughs> coming as far north as Galveston, Texas, as recently as 1952. Huh. Well, I was a child, but I didn't even know of their existence, and now they're gone. So we're still losing some of the large. And the slow, huh, they're the first to go, but we even take the fast, like the tuna and, and other creatures, some of the fastest in the sea. And even the taste isn't an option necessary to qualify for heavy levels of extraction. Think krill in Antarctica, where many are taken, thousands of tons, yanking the cornerstone out of that tightly wound system. And what do we do? We squeeze the oil out of the krill, or we grind them up as pet food or animal food, that animals that we in turn eat. Or menhaden, little oily fish, don't taste very good to us, but boy, are they ever consumed by a lot of other creatures in the sea. So here we are. I think that journey that tyranny took us on gave us, certainly gave for me, a reminder of the whole, the planet, that gives us life. Most of it blue. Water is the key. No blue, no water, no life. No green, huh. no blue, no green, no water, no life. It's only about now that we're able to see ourselves with that amazing image from space that kids now grow up with. But Stuart Brand, thank you for rocking the boat and making sure that that image was made public so that every little school kid does grow up with it now and assumes what I didn't know as a child because that image didn't exist at that time that when you turn the world around, there's a big blue face, the Pacific Ocean. I could do it on a globe. I certainly had a classroom globe <laughs> to enjoy as a kid, but it, it isn't the same. Not the same as having human eyes up there, looking back and holding that little jewel, that little speck in the midst of a lot of very unfriendly options out there. Just try setting up housekeeping on Mars. I think we will. I think it's cool. I think we should. I'd like to go, but I'd also like to come back. <laughs> and here's the thing. With all that attention to let's go set up housekeeping on the moon, 
Mars or the universe beyond. Some would like to terraform Mars. It's a great idea, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but we don't have four and a half billion years to make Mars Earth-like. Just think about what we're doing to Earth, making it more Mars-like, Mars-forming Earth. More CO2 in the atmosphere. The atmosphere of Mars is mostly CO2. We're heading in that direction. Not nearly the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere here that Mars has. In fact, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is tiny. But it's just right, just enough to power photosynthesis, to generate oxygen, fix food, and make the planet function. But too much CO2 is does not favor us. Now, there may be other organisms that will say, woohoo, let's go. Let's get rid of all these other pesky creatures because with more CO2, perhaps our time has come. We've been lurking in the sidelines for a billion years, and now we can prosper again, or our deep descendants may prosper again. Earth will, one way or the other, go on. What now, after a long time, we are looking at is a future. The next 10 years are likely to be the most important in the next 10,000 years, owing to what we do or don't do. And Tierney gave us a pretty good view of why that's so, what's happening, what we're doing to alter the nature of nature and what the consequences are, and even, huh, what can we do about it? Well, one of the things I want to do about it is take you on a dive to a couple of places in the ocean that may underscore what we've just been hearing. And that is where tyranny took us the Gulf Stream, to the Sargasso Sea off of Bermuda. As a kid, I read books by William Beebe, and I wanted to do what that explorer did before I was born. With a fellow ocean lover and engineer, Otis Barton, they cooked up an idea that became a reality a bathysphere, a submarine <laughs> that these two guys squirmed their way into and got lowered like a fish on a line over the side a half a mile beneath the surface of the ocean. Amazing. They were the first humans to make a round trip a half a mile beneath the ocean. And what did they see? It's like when the King Tut's tomb was open. What did you see? Wonderful things. <laughs> That's what they saw, wonderful things. They were diving into the history of life on Earth, seeing what we now recognize as possibly the most common form of communication on Earth. Not the internet. <laughs> bioluminescence. On the order of 90% of the creatures in the deep sea have some form of bioluminescence. And they speak with it. 
They flash, they sparkle, they glow, they lure in food, they signal to one another. Think of this. Average depth of the ocean is two and a half miles, 4,000 meters, plus or minus a bit. Maximum depth, seven miles, 11,000 meters. Go down 1,000 feet, light is mostly gone. A little bit is there, but not much, even in the clearest water off Bermuda in the Sargasso Sea, where these images were taken. Most of life on Earth lives in the dark, not just Sacramento or <laughs> Washington, <laughs> London, or whatever. It's dark all of the time. It's dark all of the time in most of the ocean. And life has figured out the ways and means of communicating, of getting by, using bioluminescence or ignoring light altogether. But light in the Sargasso Sea, as throughout the illuminated part of the ocean where photosynthesis occurs, to almost a thousand feet down, that powers photosynthesis, drives the great ocean food webs, generates most of the oxygen in the atmosphere. And a lot of it not by the golden rainforest, the big creatures or the kelp forests. It's the little guys that do the heavy lifting. Prochlorococcus. You may not have heard that before Tierney uttered the word. Prochlorococcus. But get with it. <laughs> you know about petunias and poinsettias and you know about all the other kinds of plants we eat, but prochlorococcus enables you to breathe. I mean, about 20% of the oxygen in the atmosphere is generated by that one kind of blue-green bacterium alone. Imagine, we didn't even know it existed until 1985. So, much more to be learned with only 5% of the ocean seen, let alone really explored. And I'm so glad that Tierney included this sweep of technology that has enabled us in very recent times, mostly the last 25 years, gaining access to the ocean as never before. But the first beginnings of it really began back there, well, I guess the very first beginnings when people began thinking about access to the sea with boats on the surface. Alexander the Great is said to have developed a kind of bell that enabled, I don't know whether he actually tried it out or he had one of his <laughs> expendables <laughs> try it, but to actually, in a glass bell over the person's head, to walk around and see what was under the surface. That was in 4 BC, I'm told. But whatever, the evolution of what we now enjoy has had a long beginning to reach where we are now. And we are just beginning to seriously access the ocean. Most of it, think of the deep sea where it's dark all the time, where corals exist, the oldest known living animal that we know so far is a coral in the deep sea known as gold coral. 7,000 years in the making. Some think perhaps as much as 9,000 years. What was the world like 5,000 years ago? Where were human beings when 
some of these deep corals first began to grow. So, here we are with the capacity to destroy them or to continue together. One of the places that our technologies have taken us where humans have not been able to go before until 2007 was the real North Pole. Not where Admiral Perry went at the top of the ocean in 1909, but the bottom, several miles beneath the ice. And so, I want to take you there. Actually, I wish I could take you there. I wish I could take myself there. <laughs> but, in fact, the Russians did it with their two submarines, Mir-1 and Mir-2. Mir means peace. I hope they practice peace in the ocean, especially in the Arctic, because the Russians really have more control, more say than any other nation. And they're being pretty pushy about exerting their influence. And in fact, during a dive, historic dive in 2007, you'll see a glimpse of it where the Mir subs made that great descent and returned. <laughs> they um, planted a titanium flag in the heart of the Arctic at the North Pole. Well, a lot of our fellow mammals have made the Arctic their home. Their future is very much at risk because of the changes that are now taking place. It isn't just because of the climate change, not just because of ocean acidification that threatens the great ocean food webs. It's also, you know, humans continue with the fine art of predation, <laughs> just like our ancestors years ago as hunter-gatherers. We've pretty much narrowed that down to a sport on the land. There are a few places where people rely largely on bushmeat for their sustenance. But in the ocean, the ocean, we are consuming bushmeat. It's all wildlife. We don't think of it that way. We're hunter-gatherers. That green glow that you saw on the underside of the ice, rich forests that are really tiny as individuals. But those lush forests power the energy cycles of food for the little fish that the birds, the birds dive. I mean, I wish I could dive as deep as some of these birds do, holding my breath. Humans have the capacity to perhaps go down, mm, some humans have gone more than 100 meters, more than, you know, some are hoping to get down to 500 feet on a single breath of air. Power assisted with weights and you know, getting some assistance coming back to the surface, but nonetheless surviving with long breath hold dives. Well, here, you don't have to hold your breath if you're in a submarine. It's one atmosphere. You can go as deep as the mirror subs. They go to 6,000 meters. Well, at the top of the world, the maximum depth is about 5,000 meters, plus a bit. Nuclear submarines have powered their way under the Arctic ice, measuring the thickness of the ice, which they now have perceived since the 1950s is noticeably thinning from beneath. So, top of the world, plant the flag, there they are. 
a century ago. And here Russia is planting the flag very recently, 2007. And now, although the top of the world is another global commons, even beyond the extent that Russia is trying to claim, there is a place at the top of the world that is high seas. And whether you're talking about the five nations that border the Arctic, or the eight nations that are involved with an Arctic Council, the fact of the matter is that every person, whatever their nationality, wherever they've come from, have a vested interest in what happens to the Arctic. Our voices have special resonance in the high seas part of the Arctic, but we all should be weighing in with concern about what's happening to what amounts to the planet's air conditioning system, the Arctic, and of course, Antarctica as well. Big changes, more changes that we are witnessing than any that have been witnessed in the history of humankind. Now, some of this is obviously natural. I mean, there's cycles that come and go through time, but we have pushed the fast forward button, changing the way the world works without knowing what the outcome is. So, let's go to another place. Let's go to a place that you will perhaps recognize. <laughs> because it's right here. It's your backyard. Although you may not recognize it, this part, any of you can see. Just walk down to Monterey. Drive down to Monterey. Walk if you like. <laughs> There's the Pacific Ocean, as seen from the land. And there, <laughs> a part of the Pacific Ocean that until recent times, humans were simply unaware of its existence. Oh, the creatures who live there knew all about the Monterey Canyon. But when I was the chief scientist of NOAA, the head of NOAA, John Canals, had a great image on his wall that was published in 1857, and it was of the Monterey Bay. And it showed soundings going out into the bay. And then they, you know, sounding, sounding, sounding along the shore, and then it just sort of stopped. They didn't know. They didn't have lines deep enough to know what was out there. And then he had next to it one of the modern, ta-da, Noah's charts <laughs> that showed in immense detail the configuration of that grand canyon of the sea. Curiously though, now it's one of the best mapped parts of the planet. But only about 5% of the ocean has been mapped with the same kind of detail that we have for Monterey Bay. For the moon, for Mars, for Jupiter. <laughs> now, I, I worked on an atlas of the ocean. Oh, this is for you, Tierney. Ha, this is Tierney's got to be your favorite fish. I don't mean to eat maybe that too, but I don't think so. This big bony fish, ocean sunfish, with a wonderful eye. You know when you look into that eye, somebody's home. <laughs> and every one is different from every other one. I didn't really appreciate that until I'd spent lots of time underwater looking at fish, looking at crabs, looking at shrimp, looking at life in the sea, up close and personal. We know every otter is unique, like every dog, every cat, 
those that are brought back to health after they've been abandoned or damaged uh, at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. They, they nurse them back to health and restore them to, everyone has its own personality. They all look different. I, I think it's just one of those things that shockingly came into focus for me that all creatures, maybe every single prochlorococcus cell is unique <laughs> with its own little tiny DNA fingerprint. It's a miracle of that great capacity for diversity. The other miracle is how connected we all are. That our DNA and prochlorococcus and, and ocean sunfish and giant kelps and whatever it is, there's a lot we have in common with all other living things. I think it's, it's a miracle of life. And knowing it is maybe another miracle. What is it about us? It gives us the power of asking questions and then finding answers. And then, as never before, with those seven billion minds that Tierney mentioned, capacity maybe to figure it out, maybe just in time, before we go too far in altering the nature of nature, of doing what it takes to hold the planet steady. That's cause for hope. National parks, we dreamed up that idea in this country. Some say the best idea America ever had early in the 20th century. Now we're edging into the 21st with another good idea of brewing, and that is to have protected areas in the sea. On the land, it wasn't really aimed at protecting the planet so that we could have a prosperous future. It was more because places were beautiful and they were being wrecked and Teddy Roosevelt was cross. And he used the power of the presidency to sign into law using the Antiquities Act monuments. <laughs> you think of a monument as a piece of granite or something. Well, he saw monuments in a different way, the living monuments. And national parks, many of them started out as monuments and morphed into this network of protected areas on the land. And around the world, about 14 creeping up to 15% of the land has some form of protection as a park, a reserve, whatever, in countries around the world. All of that in little more than a century. Yellowstone was established in 1872. It wasn't a national park system, it was, was a national park. And that was the year that the first oceanographic expedition launched from the, the shores of England to explore the ocean of the world, much as you've explored it, thanks to Tierney's great expedition around the world. But they were at the surface. They did not have even masks and fins. They lowered devices, like fishermen. They were scientific fishermen, dragging the ocean floor, bringing things up, dumping them on the deck, trying to figure out what was there. If you could bring to this stage, somebody from the Challenger expedition, and ask them, just sit in the audience and watch what you've just seen. What do you suppose would surprise them the most? Been to the moon, you have images of Mars, up in space, I mean, of course they'd be dazzled by that. And if anybody had a cell phone go off, why, they'd probably wonder, what's that? The idea that you could talk 
with this little device with people all over the world and hit a few buttons, you can download the Library of Congress <laughs> or any element of it that you wish. I mean, the technologies would, would surely blow them away. I think they might be as amazed by what we have not done, knowing what we know, and seeing how marvelous our technologies are where they've enabled us to, to be. What do you mean, they might say? Only three people have been to the deepest part of the ocean. It's only seven miles. Seven miles is nothing. And it took you until 1960 to get there the first time, and then 2012, James Cameron, a filmmaker, <laughs> an engineer, a, a genius. But all things considered, what might surprise them the most is that we haven't done more to safeguard our future. I'm surprised, knowing what I now know, that it's so hard to get people to understand the value of what nature delivers to us free, like breath, like water, like life. And I love Tommy Romingasal, the president of Palau, who has finally taken action because he gets it, partly economically, 85 million for tourism, 5 million to extract the wildlife from the sea, fishing. Hmm, I wonder what I should do. I think I should protect the 85 million, but he's also protecting his reefs. He's protecting his life. It's not just about money. One thing that money cannot buy is a planet that works in our favor. We all have to get behind the concept of protecting nature, land, air, the fabric of life, certainly. The ocean. Hope spots represent a beginning. They're like national parks, if you will, but for other reasons. To underscore, to underpin the planet that works in our favor. Time for us to return the favor. Thank you. Don't make it turn red. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Tom, I'll come. I'm going to do some questions from the audience, and you guys may have some questions of each other based on, I don't know, how recently have you guys talked to each other? Oh, just, I don't know, last month, two months, last month probably. Or, yeah, okay. Yeah. And you've known each other, how, what, for oh, decades? Oh, we go way back. Yeah. Way back. Yeah. Oh. Before she got her PhD, <laughs> Duke University. <laughs> Sylvia's alma mater, and wrote my, my recommendations for graduate school. <laughs> we bonded with epoxy over the deep flight, making the deep flight submersible many years ago with all sorts of epoxy. <laughs> We're glued together. Glued together. A <laughs> uh, question comes up. Uh, you talked a lot, Sylvia, about the, the, that we're, you know, we stopped 
living on wildlife from the land, but we're still living on wildlife from the sea. So Tom Okama asks, Heavily subsidized. <laughs> yeah. So farm fish is coming on fast. It's something like a third or half of the fish that people eat now, especially in Asia, is yeah. farm. And 20%. so his question is, is this good news, bad news, or mixed, or what? It's maybe. Say again? I think there's cause for, for hope mm -hmm. if, if animal protein is a desirable goal, and for many, that's what Omega-3 fatty yeah. acids, we like those. <laughs> but Although omega-3 fatty acids are not made by the fish. They're actually no. from the algae They're, that the fish consume. Them. So it's not, you don't need to eat the fish to get those omega-3 fatty acids. We can eat the algae. Of course, and yeah. there are several companies that are actually growing the mm -hmm. algae, smart companies. Martech. Mm -hmm. okay. And mm -hmm. instead of squeezing the little menhaden and mm -hmm. getting the oil out of them or squeezing the krill to get the oil out of them or, I don't know, it's just marketing. It's just marketing. So you can squeeze don't the algae it. and get the squeeze oil. Squeeze the algae. And, and, they don't you know, squawk as much. What's that? The algae don't squawk as much. No. <laughs> algae rights, I can see. And they, can, they grow fast, too, and it takes a long time. Those krill can be 10 or 12 years old. It takes mm -hmm. three years at least for them to mature. I, didn't I mean, know hens grow faster guys. than that. Mm -hmm. hmm? Little krill take... Absolutely, <clears throat> yeah. Wow. And, I mean, think about the fish that we, we capture. I mean, some of them are really old, like the orange ruffy that was on no one's menu until we started going down thousands of feet below the surface, knocking down these ancient corals to get to where the fish are, they can be at least 100 years old, and some are thought to be as much as 200. It takes 30 years for them to mature. How many 30-year-old cows have you eaten lately? You know? <laughs> really tough, I'd imagine. Bad meat. Um, old water. Kevin Kelly raises a question. Uh, yeah, we did, more that, just one, one more yeah, thing, though. Aquaculture, because mm -hmm. it's a, a recurrent and an important question. Mm -hmm. Much of aquaculture is powered by wild fish that are fed to the cultivated fish. Think salmon. <coughs> now, you might hear a salmon farmer say, oh, it only takes five or six times the amount of feed to get a pound of of salmon, five to one, or mm -hmm. six to one, or maybe only four to one. But it's not, that's not real accounting because it took a lot of plants at the other, at the far end of the food chain to make the little guys that made the bigger guys to make the bigger guys to get to the little fish that they feed to the salmon. So if you want real accounting, you have to start with sunlight and plants. And that's where Prochlorococcus does the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm to power the tiny little copepods about as big as a comma on a printed page, and there are gazillions of them that feed the tiny fish and the larvae of everybody else out there. It's a very complicated system, but it, the simple part is, if you want an honest accounting of what, what <laughs> it takes to make a tuna fish sandwich, for example, you have to start at the beginning, sunlight, plants, and you have to think, how old is the tuna that went into your sandwich or your sushi or sashimi? Because it takes the bluefin tuna that people love to eat, according to Barbara Block, Stanford, 10 to 14 years for them to mature. They may live to be 30 years. And every step of the way, you know, they are eating, eating, eating every year. Think about a 10-year-old kid. How many Big Macs and French fries and whatever else it is that goes into making a 10-year-old kid. <laughs> or, or one of you, how many, think of the groceries that have gone in to, to make all of, 
condensed into making you now. So the younger the fish or the animal, the lower on the food chain, plants, sunlight plants chicken, it's about two pounds of plants to make one pound of chicken. But for tuna, a 10-year-old tuna, you've got to think in terms of thousands of pounds of plants. So aquaculture, any, any carnivores, forget it. You know, the best choices are probably catfish, tilapia, carp, grazers that grow fast, you know, a year or so. But if you really want to be smart, eat the plants. But or photosynthesize, figure out how to do that. I know, <laughs> photosynthetic skin would solve so many problems. But there are some really interesting aquaculture solutions that are mm -hmm. making balanced ecosystems. So instead of monocultures, which we yeah. know have all sorts of problems, we have polycultures where you're, you're being able to, you, uh, there's one called integrated multitrophic aquaculture. Oh, that's just, a good name. Just kind of rolls <laughs> off the tongue. Must be an acronym. And, um, <laughs> but it, being able to harvest from multiple trophic levels so you have a, a balanced ecosystem. Hmm. that supports itself. So that's one that's looking promising. There's also more innovative food supplies. Um, yeah. Like the latest one I heard of is black soldier fly larvae, which lives on cow and pig dung and makes huge amounts of protein. Arthropods are really, insects are really good at this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And being able to harvest that. Birds figured that out a long time ago. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so um, harvesting from a food source that's very fast turnover mm -hmm. and um, can be grown on, on waste products mm -hmm. is, is looking really promising. So I think um, we, we have to figure out aquaculture if we're mm -hmm. going to provide enough protein. And we have to eat more plants and, and yeah. less of the animal life for, for our own health. Well, speaking of animals without backbones, uh, Kathy Suav asks, uh, can you give us an update on the status of the sea star wasting syndrome on our coast? Mm. The, the stars are in trouble, and what's going on? Yeah, I hear that there are some recovery. Um, not all places are, are as hard hit, but it's still, um, it's still not solved as far as I know. It's still mm -hmm. a, a mystery as to what's what's going on. Um, so it, what happens is that these sea stars are just starting to disintegrate. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm not sure if the They have calcium carbonate shells mm -hmm. you know, in, embedded in their skin. Mm -hmm. And they're very sensitive to changes in the pH of their environment. It may be part of, part of what's happening, or it may be something totally unrelated. Some yeah, it's still, it's still a mystery, um, mm -hmm. that. But um, part, some areas are recovering, and other parts are still um, seeing it. So it's still a big area of research. Well, another item in the news is uh, supposedly there's a great big El Nino taking shape in the East Pacific. Um, do you guys have any views on that? That, um, <clears throat> we don't know if it's going to be a big one. That's, okay. still, that's still unknown, um, because it, well, it's looking similar to what we saw in 97 based on these, these mm -hmm. images. And it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. You recall, remind us what happened in 97. Oh, 97 was a, was, a, was a big El Nino where you mm -hmm. had... Um, and there was what? Flooding and droughts and... Flooding and when you have warm water, a lot of, um, you know, you just have a, a shifting of the... Just like what we see when we're, we're raising the temperature of the ocean, that you have a huge shifting in who's, who's eating whom, mm -hmm. populations um, falling out. I mean, I think um, 82 was another huge one that um, swept through Galapagos, and, and Galapagos has never, never recovered from that. Mm -hmm. 
It lives, so things so there the live on the biodiversity in the ocean goes down when that kind of yeah. temperature change occurs? That's yeah. interesting. Well, and you have um, kelp needs a certain temperature to, right. to prosper. So when you don't have the kelp forest, kelp forests will go down. And then everything, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of species that rely on the kelp forests. I, I think the really interesting, the good news mm -hmm. is that humans have the capacity for the first time to even understand something about how El Nino is formed and why. Mm -hmm. When NOAA, the agency, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, was first glued together from several departments of the government, the primary goal was to try to get the atmospheric guys together with the ocean community so that they were kind of forced to get their act together. The, the ocean, after all, drives climate and weather. <laughs> But you don't even now read a lot about, when you hear about climate change, it's about the atmosphere and what we're putting into the atmosphere, but you should <laughs> listen up. It's the ocean that drives all of it. It really shapes the temperature and that, those great currents moving the, the, the air above it, creating much of what we think of as the wind and holding the planet steady as the great thermoregulator. The whole concept of understanding El Nino really got it underway in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. It's been known off the coast of Peru, where it's a really uh, clear phenomenon when it happens, when that tongue of warm water comes across the Pacific and washes the shores of Peru, where it's usually cold temperate water with kelp forests like we have mm -hmm. here. And everything changes for a while. And Bacteria uh, ca cause the sulfur bacteria blacken the painted surfaces. They call it the, the black painter. Comes around Christmas time when it happens. So they think of El Nino as the child, the Christ child, because so it comes around Christmas. The question, Sylvia, of the microbes which you've been focusing on in the ocean, which are so responsible for atmosphere and other things we care about, and bottom of the food chain, all of this. Is microbial life much affected, do you think, by climate change, or does it uh, shrug off things like that? Oh, which that's, microbes are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, there's, a lot uh, of there's that. There's you going know, to be a lot that, that are... make the uh, you know the crank out a lot of oxygen. We probably care about. Those. We don't know. Yeah. I, I think we should. Yeah. What, what has been noticed, though, that since 1950, there is a decline of photosynthetic. Phyto, well, the phytoplankton, mm -hmm. uh, by some, uh, maybe, I mean, you pin a lot on a few studies, but by some analysis, it's as much as 40%. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that it's really that much globally. But even if it's 5%, you lose 5% of your lungs, <laughs> you, you'd notice. Mm -hmm. uh, we, there's enough stability in what already exists, that it's taken so long to get it to the place that it is, it, it, you know, it may take a long while before the effects of losing a big chunk of your, and think of all the forests that have been cut. Mm -hmm. Think of the, we're, we're down in, in North America to about 5% of the old growth forest. They are the most productive of all in terms of, of generating oxygen. Now, a, a new forest grows fast, and you get a, a lot of turnover, but 
Think of the biomass of a redwood tree with all those little needles doing their thing and all the mosses and all the ferns and all the rest of it. It's not just you know, like a lawn where you get photosynthesis acting very quickly, but huh, there's no substitute for what we've destroyed already. Uh, you mentioned old water being very acidic and mm -hmm. coming up in the upwelling and so on. Mm -hmm. um, what makes it old, and <laughs> why is it more acidic? And if it's old, I would have thought that this is presumably not the acidification that we're causing with mm -hmm. carbonization. But yeah, what no, is it? it is because it's been sinking. It's been sinking carbon as well. And mm -hmm. then, and then once you're um, so, what makes it old is um, not reaching the surface. Mm -hmm. And so, and also, so as it's traveling, it's also. Um, taking in a lot of the carbon dioxide from the respiratory processes of all the life that is in the ocean as well. So that adds to it in addition to the carbon from... And so we have, we have um, a more mixing in the surface waters, but when so you're very releasing deep... releasing carbon dioxide. The ocean actually plus. releases a ton of carbon right. dioxide. Um, it, it sinks a lot of carbon dioxide, but it releases a lot of carbon dioxide as well. But when it's very low, all that stays in and all the respiratory... Um, excellent mm -hmm. of, of the decaying process and all the life goes down there. It doesn't get mixed. It stays down there and not having access to the surface. So it also releases methane. And, and it's methane. Acidic, it's acidic, but it's also full of nutrients, right? And that's why these upwellings are these incredibly fertile, biodiverse, megafauna mm -hmm. areas. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Where well, you get first yeah. the micro mm -hmm. um, plants that make the megafauna possible. Mm -hmm. It's the food chain. You get the nutrients. I mean, you wouldn't get blue whales in Monterey Bay if you didn't have a heck of a lot of phytoplankton out there hmm. to start with mm -hmm. that makes the krill possible, that makes the whales possible. Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing. You know, I attend a, a number of food security conferences because I'm uh, really curious at the thought that we have to kill fish for secure food security. Well, we don't. Mm -hmm. But the, the idea that Farming is very tightly connected to fertilizer. You know, you're very conscious of where the nutrients come from that cause the corn and other things to, to pro prosper. In the ocean, there's no waste. You know, the phytoplankton is eaten by little copepods that poop fertilizer back into the system. Little fish eat the copepods and they poop and it goes back into the system. The whales eat the little fish that eat the copepods that, you know, so on and so on. What and they whale poop give poop? back. Wait, 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 wait. I just realized, I have no idea what whale poop is like. We've all heard about whale <laughs> penises sometimes, and stuff like that. Sometimes it's pink. It's a lot of times it's pink. They're eating krill. Well, it's, it's just pink. It just squirts pink. out. It's, it's whatever yeah. whatever yeah. it is, Stuart, the, the phytoplankton just says, Eat it up. delicious. Mana. <laughs> right. Mana from heaven. So, and megafauna are famous for moving nutrients around. So yeah, these guys that's right. That. Yeah. And, but they're always giving back. And see, it's part of what the chemistry of the ocean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and people want to go swimming in it. <laughs> uh, coming down to the end here, I'll ask each, each of you Kevin Kelly's question. What are the really outstanding questions and mysteries that... Uh, we still have. And both of you focused on how much knowledge there's been in the last hundred years. 
and uh, how much is you know, only 5% map, but we've been a lot of places, and you've, you, know, you showed us the current. We didn't know where the current was 100 years ago. We just knew there was weirdness. So a lot is known, but what is unknown and is important to find out? You first, Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think our biggest questions are, how are we going to define our relationship with the ocean? And are we going to be able to extract what we need from it without destroying it? And, and we've, you know, in some ways we do know a lot about the ocean, but in a lot of ways it's still a total mystery. We cannot predict a lot of what happens in the ocean. Give some examples. What are some things that surprised us recently that we thought we had figured out? Well, I mean, still the uncertainty of El Nino. We're getting there. But we still don't know if it's going to be a big one until we're about maybe three to four months into it, and then we'll be like, it's going to be a big one. <laughs> I mean, we can certifiably say it's going to be a big one because we're in it. And I mean, that's the way ocean science is. I mean, we, have, we just found this incredible decadal process in the ocean called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, whereas El Nino is more like a 17-month phenomenon, the, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation is more on the order of 20 to 30 years, and we get, you know, two to three temp degree temperature changes on our coast when we're in a certain phase of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And then when you have an El Nino on top of that, oh man, we're really hammering the ocean when we, and so, and we didn't know that that the Pacific had this huge process in it. Mm -hmm. We're just discovering that with proxies, with fish scales, and you know, we, we, we're, we're finding that out. So our forecast ability is still lacking, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so, but we're, we're trying to put it all together. That's why cabled observatories that give us this 24 seven mm -hmm. presence in the ocean where we can, weather the storms, you know, that's when a lot of the big action's happening in the ocean, when you have a huge storm. Really? Massive, massive stirring up, lots of carbon sinking, lots of nutrients. Mm -hmm. And that's when the scientists are like, get my equipment out of there, it's gonna get destroyed. That's when all the equipment has to be there. Mm -hmm. Because those are the big episodic events that are defining the character of the ocean. So, so you I, send brave robots into the stormy areas. Yes, yes, that don't get seasick and won't <laughs> sue you. And don't get bored. Exactly. <laughs> the latter and, part is probably yeah, the... I know. You know it's a, no litigious robots allowed. <laughs> yeah. So I, that's, I think that's my biggest, my biggest question is, are we going to... Are we going to recognize the importance of the ocean fast enough to put our money where our mouth is mm -hmm. and supply the resources financially and emotionally and cognitively to, to study the ocean. Mm -hmm. Okay, do science, do preservation, it sounds mm -hmm. like. Um, what else? Well, what else we I certainly need? go along with all that you said. And maybe just add a few touches that we I think President Obama made the comment that our highest priority must be to keep the world safe for our children. Well, he was thinking guns and things. But that comment, our highest priority, must be to keep the world safe for those coming along. That's what our predecessors, in a way, did for us. Our parents took care of us as kids and w wished us well. 
provided for us, not so we could just be the end of the world, but a new beginning for whatever might follow. And here we are, the beginning of this new century, armed with unprecedented knowledge and unprecedented opportunity. And unprecedented ignorance, hopefully. I mean, science unprecedented tells ignorance, us no question we don't about know. that. But, so what are the important yeah, things but, we don't but, know? We don't know why the ocean matters. We don't mm -hmm. know that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I have a glimpse. It keeps us alive. The ocean is our life support system. It just is. And the most important thing that we take out of the ocean is our existence. It's not oil, gas, fish, crabs, oysters, or anything else, or even the fun that we enjoy. It's, we need to protect the ocean as if our lives depend on it, because they do. And knowing that, mm -hmm. making the connections. You know, we're, we're so fascinated with going high in the sky, and we should be. I love it. And it's paid off enormously. We have all these great benefits owing to satellites and transportation all over the place, and the knowledge that we now have is largely because hey, we burned through millions of years of fossil energy to get us to where we are. And maybe the greatest gift of that is to see that we've got to change our ways, else we're cooked, literally. Mm -hmm. But we've neglected the ocean. We've taken it for granted. We have imagined the ocean was too big to fail. Our policies, we have a billion dollar agency in, in our government the National Marine Fisheries Service that's dedicated to catching, killing, marketing fish and helping fishermen do it with subsidized loans and things. You know, it's when, when are we going to sort of lift above that attitude about the ocean, not as a place from which we extract? It's okay to, to fish, it's okay to take some things, but as long as you are not disrupting the basic engine that keeps us alive. And that's what is lacking. It's that connection between, because, partly because we don't, we can't supply straight answers to some of the straight questions people ask because we've only done this much. But the precautionary principle would say, well, we, we know what we know now, having explored maybe 5%, doesn't it seem obvious that it's so important? Why aren't we going flat out as we did in the 60s to go skyward with all the benefits that have come about. And, and while robots are great to swim around, there's no substitute for having human beings in the ocean. I had thousands of hours underwater. I wouldn't think the way I think had I not literally been there and, and or feel driven to share the view with all of you if I hadn't been there. The, Jim Cameron, who made that great descent to the deepest part of the ocean and came back, fortunately. He said, little kids don't want to grow up to be robots. They want to be explorers. They want to know. They want to go. They want to be there. I want to be there. I want you to go there. I want you to see for yourself. And even if you get seasick or if you have to go into this, I mean, you get pilots flying into the eye of a hurricane to see what's there. Well, if they can do that, human beings and tiny little piece of machinery up in the sky, why can't we take the risk and forget about suing people, for heaven's sakes, and go into the ocean? I mean, we've got to be...
the greatest risk is in not taking risks, in getting out there and really understanding and how the ocean not, works. They're not mutually exclusive by uh -huh. any measure. I mean, you've got your man, your woman subs. But not many. And <laughs> not many. Like how and many your, are there? And your, your ROVs, your AUVs. Yeah, we need them your, all. Your open ROVs. You need a whole I toolbox. Mean, you, need, you need all of them. They're by no means, by no means mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I mean, it's seriously, 99% of our living space, and we've seen less than 5% with our own eyes, we got a lot out there. We got a lot of exploring to Don't do. Don't you want to know how this airplane okay, works? A real, <laughs> last, a real last question. Is both of you. you guys dive. For science and for pleasure, uh, where would you like to dive for science or for pleasure? Like, like for, to dive, dive next? for science next? or for like pleasure? Tomorrow? Or? Just, you know, yeah. where, where do you want to go? <laughs> ah, anywhere Sylvia 50 years Venturi. ago. Go ahead. Where? Yeah, anywhere 50 <laughs> years ago. I, almost anywhere 50 years ago. I'd love to yeah. see the way, love, no, dive back or 50 years from now right. to see what it, how it turns so you, out. You've, you'd like to go really deep. I'd love to go. I, I am so jealous of. Cameron for having <laughs> I noticed <gone>. that. <laughs> I mean, I pestered him, and I pointed out that I fit in that little submarine better than he does. <laughs> and he uh, kind of waffled there for a while. Maybe someday, but and no, actually, no woman has been to the bottom of the ocean. It's there to be done. No woman, girls. That <laughs> is not but acceptable. If you, if but you were going to do a deep dive, if, you, could, you, know, if you could persuade. Yes, we can clap to that. <laughs> Yes, Sylvia, but, but, but we're working but where would on you it. like to go deep now? Where do you think would be most well, interesting? I mean, it'd be cool to go Challenger deep. to the <laughs> deepest part of the ocean because if you can go there, you can go anywhere in the right. ocean. And right across the bay at deep ocean exploration and research, there, there are plans mm -hmm. with a glass submarine. Glass is a wonderful material, very strong under pressure. Mm -hmm. And it, we ought to be exploring but it might take $50 million to build a three-person sub made of glass. Most of that would be testing. The actual building of it would maybe be $5 million. How many yachts are there that cost $100 million? Right. <laughs> and we could go to where no yacht has ever been round trip. <laughs> Lots of them have been one way. <laughs> Is it, Deep is it happens I'm reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas right now, Jules Verne, <laughs> this sounds very familiar. And it's the great long fantasy that humans have had, and I think yeah. this is okay, Silicon Valley, let's do it. You know, well, a, we should. A glass submarine for people to see what you've seen. And to have not just, just a handful of lucky scientists go, or lucky film directors, mm -hmm. explorers, <laughs> who make films so they can explore with submarines they build themselves. Um, but nothing wrong with that. I love that <laughs> entrepreneurial spirit. They just should have made one for you. Yeah, yeah. why not two? Uh, well, you know, it shouldn't be just a privileged place for a handful of eyes and minds to go. We need poets yeah. there. We need to get the corporate leaders there. We need the heads of state to see what they're doing to the ocean. We need kids to go to tell people to take care of their planet. I mean, really, we need access right. to the sea. Tierney, where do you want to dive? The place I would love to dive most is the first place where my son and daughter are on scuba gear with me, and we can stay deep for a long time <laughs> and really get to know some fish in their own area. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where that's going to be, maybe Indonesia, 
<laughs> but at this rate, my um, daughter is quite the fish. Her brother's not far behind. Um, they're still not old enough to get certified, but when they are, that is going to be the place. That is going to be one of the most special places ever. I like it. Get kids in the water, get politicians in yeah. the water. Yes. Change the world. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This is great. <laughs> Thanks, Sylvia. Thank you. Thank you all. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.